last spoke to you, Gary, on April the 13th. Since then, uh, I had a really good opening chapter for my FA Youth Cup book. I wrote it the morning after the Champions League final. So you, as a Chelsea fan, will be delighted. Just a little bit, Johnny, yeah. Um, yeah I've been looking forward to... to uh, I remember we spoke in April about the book. I thought that's, that's got a great uh, potential, so... And yeah, what a great opening chapter Martha provided for you. Not just that, we're talking on the 9th of uh, December. On Sunday, I'll be going to King's Meadow to, well, barring some kind of lapse in the space-time, Chelsea beating Leighton Orient, and Chelsea will play Watford away, probably at the Vic, in the fourth round, which will happen before my deadline for the book. So, Watford will get knocked out by Chelsea, and then the book will be published around the time Chelsea win do you follow them usually? Not so much the youth team. I mean, what I tend to do is we've got, I've got, there's Chelsea got an app called the Fifth Stand, so you do pick up a lot of the youth team and the uh, women's teams on that. So I do tend to dip in and out of it. And obviously when there's a Champions League game on, the um, the development squads play each other in the Champions yes. League at the same time. So I do catch those games as well. Yeah, I forgot about that. I'm going to have to have a look at that. Um, Abdullah Abdullah, so good they named him twice, is <laughs> writing a book about Chelsea ladies. And this summer we had Emma Hayes all over the TV doing her masterful thing, or as I call her, Dame Emma Hayes. What a wonderful contribution she was to, clearly knows what she's talking about. A while ago, um, Stuart and myself had the pleasure of interviewing Lindsay Hooper on one of our podcasts. And, you know, we were talking about, and I can't remember the one's name, we just been appointed as a coach at Boris Green, and we were saying, um, you know, it's great to get stepped forward. And Lindsay made a perfectly good point that that sort of thing shouldn't be news because... Why should uh, it be something remarkable when a woman gets a job coaching a men's football team? It's football. Uh, and Emma Hayes could, she could do a perfect good job coaching a men's football team because it's just the same game. Yeah, I mean, you, you never say, oh my God, Dido Harding is in charge of the track and trace system. We, we don't... Well, well I, <laughs> I do, that's for an entirely different reason. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Please don't switch off this show just because I've mentioned politics, but politics are in the news. There's a very quick turnaround, because I want this out the day after we chat. Uh, you're in sunny Spain. Is it sunny in December in Spain, or is it wet? It actually is very sunny the last couple of days. We've had a, a few um, overcast days last week or so, the last few days pick up again. Uh, we're in Spain now for the 10 days, and hopefully all being well, and politics and COVID not, notwithstanding. Uh, come back to the UK for Christmas for 10 days on socially family and friends. And by friends, do they include Stephen Scraggs, Stu Horsfield, Paul McParland, and I'm missing one, aren't I? Who am I missing? I think uh, it would probably be Aiden. Will you see I'm them? No, it's a short answer in as much as... Um, I'm a bit of an outlier. I mean, I come from the West Midlands, as we discussed last time, and all the other guys, um, uh, Paul and Steve, both live in Liverpool. Uh, Stuart's from Hall, and Aiden lives in Newcastle. So they're all quite a chunk away from me, so no, the only time we tend to meet is online. Although a few years ago, Steve and I were both uh, to be nominated for the Blogger of the Year Awards by the Football Sports Association at the, uh, in London. Um, they got back up to the final six, so I actually met Steve for the first and only time then in person. Wow, as a rival. <laughs> and in fact, uh, no, rivals, yeah. since we spoke in April, I've had Stephen in because he's finished his trilogy of books about European trophies. Um, I've had Paul yep. in to talk about Everton. He was in for Scouse Week. And I have now surpassed 200 uh, football library chats. Although this will go out before my chat with Johnny Nick. So this is, right. this is number 200, but actually 199. 
as far as it goes, or 198. And then following you will be Stuart Cosgrove. Oh, right, OK. Whom you may have read as a music journalist or as a... heard as a sports uh, broadcaster. Uh, I, I, know, I know the name. I, I'm not familiar with work, but I know the name. I'm from Twitter. Yes, yes. Stu is a St Johnston fan and does off the ball. He's kind of uh, Scotland's Danny Baker. Oh, right, OK. I reckon he would be interested in your two books, The Games People Play and The Whole New Ball Game. Um, the first one came out a year ago. Then you brought out your beautiful yeah. Bridesmaids Dressed in Orange book, which we talked about earlier this year. And now you've got the second book. This yeah. is akin, a well-known podcast uh, said, to Steven Spielberg doing Schindler's List and Jurassic Park in the same year. Strange because I did a pod about the uh, the guns pit, uh, sorry, the uh, Oldsmobile game with uh, with Steve and Stuart Eight a couple of weeks back, which came out quite recently. And uh, yeah, I was working on um, the Beautiful Bridesmaids and the uh, Hollywood game at the same time. This we how to do that? Uh, it's really strange because I mean it's strange because it's not strange yeah. you know, in a weird sort of way. When I'm writing fiction, I can just like pull a cloak over my head metaphorically and I'm in a different world then and it's easy to do that and then dip back into a reality book like Beautiful Bridesmaids or the others I've worked on since uh, that it is to write two historical pieces so uh, it would be difficult to write uh, the history of England the World Cup and the Beautiful Bridesmaids at the same time because the they're both true uh, so they're both in the same world whereas if one, when I'm sort of dipping between fiction and reality it's two different worlds. So it's like, it's like, it's like listening to a radio and cook at the same time. You can do both of those things, but you couldn't cook, cook and knit a jump at the same time. Yes, precisely. I know that John Friedland, for instance, uh, writes his Sam Bourne novels in the summer holidays. He just spends two weeks on holiday in somewhere hot, just doing X thousand words a day. So while we're on the topic of a few thousand words a day... I counted them all back in and I counted them all out. 125,000 words, both books, each. How no. many uh, did you do a day or couldn't you tell me because it was just as it came? I'm, I'm in a very fortunate situation. I worry, Johnny, in as much as I don't have work to get in the way of what I want to do. I tend to write three or four days a week, depending on other commitments. Uh, when I say write, I mean I do a news, weekly newspaper column and obviously work for the magazines for TFT. And other things as well, but so my work that my working week is three to four days a week, and in that time it might be three days on the book, it might be two days on the book. The the novels um, I tend to find come much quicker. Each of the novels probably took me, uh, I don't know, six seven months perhaps, um, from, and that's including all these sort of setting up um, as well as the actual writing. The other books like the Beautiful Bridesmaids and the one of a commit in May and then one next year they, they, they probably take me 12, 14 months so it's almost twice as long but the novels because it's you haven't got to sort of do so much research in, about factual history and you know, events and basically it's your world so that, there's more writing and less research shall we say I spoke to Steve Tung who's uh-huh. written all those Turf Wars book and he said that oh, yeah. he spends a day researching a day planning and a day writing so it's a three day job for him whereas if you're saying something off the top of your head. There's no research needed, except for you need to story build. So was, is the fun of writing fiction, the books are games people play in a whole new ball game, the fun is in world building and story building and character building? Definitely. Um, I mean, process of writing fiction is, is a, for me is a weird thing, in as much as I never really took any advice off anybody. I, never, I didn't know 
what was the best way to do it. I just know what I did. Uh, the only advice I ever took, and I can't remember who it was, and one of the guys on the podcast we had, I think might be Michael Carbon, I can't remember, said, it's always best to write the last chapter first. Because otherwise, you're setting off on a journey and you don't know where you're going. And I thought, that's, that was a brilliant bit of advice. So in both my fictional books, I've written the last chapter first. And then, then I've sort of built from there. But the boring part of the both the books, fiction books, I think, is creating the season, not, not the, the kind of the season. So I basically set up an Excel spreadsheet with all the games on uh, what results are going to be throughout the season and the events. And then I sort of, that's the skeleton, the hang of story upon. So the writing is probably the last part that I get to. So I set everything up first, the sort of bones of the story, and then you hang the flesh on it, which is the, the words attached to the, um, to the skeleton. Yeah, indeed, they, they call um, a mind map a skeleton plan. And whenever, and indeed yeah. in the law, that you have skeleton arguments. And so it really is, and it, it is common sense advice. The bigger the foundations, the better the house. Would you wanted to have actually put the ending at the top of the story? It's a common narrative trick to lure the reader in by launching yourself three quarters of the way through the story and then essentially putting up a panel saying three, we- three years previously or two weeks before. Um, <laughs> I, I, sure, I just, no, I didn't. And I, and I would have been tempted because I really liked the ending of the first book. And I wanted to... I, I just, uh, when, I, when I was doing the, the podcast with Stephen and Stu, um, Steve's kind of got this wonderful phrase about the ending of the first book, and he said it just it was just like leaving some toffee stuck in your teeth. And it was tasting nice, but it was a little bit irritating. And I thought it was a wonderful way of phrasing it, and um, I didn't want to give the story away until the last, literally the last two or three pages of the of the book, because I wanted to um, to lead to lead the reader the reader on a on a story where he thought it was going, and then sort of had this this jagged turn right at the last moment. So um, no, I didn't want to do that because I, I thought. I thought so you could sort of, you want people to read to the end, of course. So, no, I didn't really want to do that. Good. The, the phrase is, will they, won't they? And then whenever oh, yeah. I'm watching a film in the third act and they get together, I always just instinctively nowadays go, will they? Like a happily ever after. Like a happy ever after. Yeah. But at the end of the first book, we hang off a cliff like the Italian job. Um, we have the cast of characters, which I'll, I'll bring in now. Long story short, there's a villain called Charlie Broom. Our hero is John Morton. Injury curtailed his career, but he's very good with young players. So he moves over to Spain, where Charlie Broom um, sets him up as manager of the team that he runs. And then the girl, Sophia, was connected with the old manager. And there's a spiky first scene, which is like an introducing the band. So I wanted to ask, were you ever scared of overwhelming the reader because when you're introducing the gang i.e the squad is a big chapter where sophia says this is this guy this is this guy this is this guy much like a, a movie script but were you careful not to overwhelm yeah i was um what i wanted to do was to find a device that i could introduce the readers to the the other uh, characters in the cast and i just thought it was a really sort of neat way of doing it Using Sophia introducing the players to uh, to Morton as the same way as doing introducing the, the cast to the readers. And what I did was, there was I think there's four or five I can't remember five or six players that had, were, were more developed at that time because they were going to be the key characters in the first part of the book. And I built the others up as we went along. I think I think there are 28 characters in the book off the top of my head. So you get the three or four main characters, which in the first book are John, uh, Sophia, and and uh, Charlie. 
and obviously Bobby Swan, uh, Swanee comes in later, and the rest are really revolve around their reactions around between those those four main characters. But uh, I wanted to, I, it was a danger if I, to overwhelm the reader with too much detail early on, so I tended to have five or six, or five, I can't remember exactly, um, characters built up with some depth first, and then building those up as it went along. And these include Paco, oh, I can't remember where the stress is, it's either Jimenez or Jimenez. Jimenez. It is Jimenez. It is the second E. I put the accent on the wrong place. Uh, Paco is the wise old goalie. There's always a wise old character, like the chief in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He seems to look, he seems to look after Sophie. Is there any Gary Thacker in the character of Paco Jimenez? Do you know, uh, no, though, not, not really at all. I mean, basically, with all of the characters, none of, well, no, that's not true. There are two characters that are based um, physically on, on somebody, mm-hmm. but the rest... I mean, basically, I had all these characters in my head and a vague idea of what they looked like. So what I did was I went onto Google, typed in a description of, of what the character looked like. It might be sort of elderly goal, goalkeeper or something like that. I can't remember exactly what Pictures, and then just find a picture that I think matched in. But basically, what I did I printed it, and I had a sort of a, a world gallery of all the characters, then got a firm idea of what they looked like, and I built from there. But the only two characters in the book that are, are, are some resemblance to real life uh, uh, Bobby Broom as Charlie's father. Uh, Garcia, it was basically uh, uh, based on uh, Vicente Del Bosque, physically, because oh. I wanted a, a guy oh. who was sort of quite elderly, uh, an ex-player, quite wise, and that sort of thing. And uh, Bobby Broom, so I wanted somebody who was an empathetic person, knew a lot about football, was kind and understanding. And he's, in my mind, he's Bobby Robson. Whereas Charlie, his son... Huh? seems to be an amalgam of all the subjects of David Conn's book, The Beautiful Game, which is, is a rogues gallery of George Reynolds and other unme- uh, the Oyston, Owen Oyston and yeah. other unmentionables. Yeah. But yes, we get the feeling that Charlie's a bit of a wide boy. Um, yes. But at the same time, is very good to John, who is in a bit of a pickle, um, and gets offered the job and... What was it? Charlie gives him his wages up front, tells him to buy stuff. So we are lured in by Charlie. Did you find that he was of the devil's party without knowing it, as Milton said of Satan, that he was in some ways you could appreciate the villain or was he an all-out nasty piece of work? I think the key element of the story is there's nobody all bad and there's nobody all good and it's difficult to know whether he's a good guy turned bad or a bad guy turned good and that's true of a number of the characters, but this one particularly. But what I wanted to do with Charlie was to paint a picture of a guy who got seduced by opportunity. This, this, is, this comes out more in the second book. But, you know, he was, he was a guy who, who wasn't bad, almost suffered a little bit for his moneyed upbringing and carried that weight along for a while and been sort of given everything by time by his father. And there was a price to pay for that in, as he sort of matured in his life, reflected that sort of background, that, that, uh, that way he was brought up and the way he, he thought he had been treated. Yeah, and he basically goes into the family business and runs a football club as well as other things. Um, no. Billy Swan, by the way, every time his name came up, I had this little organ riff in my head. You got a problem, don't care what it is. If you need a hand, I 
I can help. Oh, you do know, I never. Just the first time somebody said, Todd, Billy's won the, the character, Billy's won the song, the, the singer. I, I never thought of that before. Of course, I, I did know the song, yeah, but it never struck me. It's never struck me. That's interesting. Wow. I wanted to use the word swan as a name because in the second book, it, and I got, kept this sort of <laughs> this device in my head for a long time when he sort of, he was a good guy, turned bad, turned good, turned bad, turned good. Then he, the ugly duckling that turned into a beautiful swan. And that was in my mind, I could use that, that device somewhere in the book, and, and I did. But um, and, and Billy was just a sort of fairly old-fashioned working-class name, so, uh, yeah, it never struck me, Johnny. That's, you're the first person ever to plan that up. A Nashville cat, an old <laughs> singer, I can help. Uh, yeah, I've, yeah. I've, I've run the song underneath here, but Billy Swan in your book is a cocky older pro... Um, was he an amalgam of some old pros from from days gone by? Very much so. Very much so. I mean, it's none of these, but it's a little bit of all of these. You can picture um, Stan Bowles, you can picture Brad Worthington, you can picture, um, I don't know. Charlie George. Charlie George, Peter Osgood. Yeah. Players who came up through the sort of uh, working-class backgrounds, especially from the, you know, the sort of the lesser slubist sides of London. And... You know, they're again, they're creatures of their upbringing as well. And, you know, uh, it's all about number one, it's not about the four points, it's about the dash. That was, that was one of the phrases I kept bringing out, which is sort of uh, is the rationale at the end of the first book. I don't know how much I'm allowed to say, obviously, I hate talking about books because people need to read them, and the books are the games people play, which came out at the beginning of the year or the end of last year. Yeah, pretty much. It's, no, it came out just before Christmas, uh, the previous year. Yeah, so it's they're both. It's about twelve months between them, mm-hmm. all but a couple of weeks. The new one is a whole new ball game, and they are available. Oh, I haven't checked the prices. How much are they? Well, um, the the uh, the games people play is ridiculously cheap on Amazon at the moment. They've got a bargain, and I think it's something like it's less than two quid plus the uh, delivery. And the I think the uh, the whole new ball game is about a tenner or thereabouts. So you can probably get a bar for fourteen quid plus the delivery. That's pretty good. Uh, and very shortly yeah. we'll talk about some other football fiction books, uh, including mine, Hold That Thought, because I don't want to overwhelm this show, uh, which is with Gary Thacker, <laughs> who is a fan of Chelsea Football Club, who came to Watford, uh, not you, Chelsea Football Club, and almost lost. It was only 2-1. I think we, we kept it reasonable. Uh, very quickly, are you going to win the treble? No, not a chance. Cool. I mean, basically, you played us off the park. Uh, it was it was robbery to get away from that game with a win was absolute robbery, and we've been playing um, so poorly since. Um, drew it home to Burnley, drew it home to Man United. Winning all those games were ahead. Uh, we were winning last night twice against um, Zenith and conceded goals. Conceded three goals for the first time in God knows how long. Yes, it was. Um, yeah, it's cost us top point, top place in the league and. Uh, in the, in, the, so in the Champions League group, which will um, mean we're playing one of the top seeds next time, so that might end our... Uh, now, I mean, we've, we've sort of hit a bit of a brick wall. I mean, Tuchel's uh, time at the club's been wonderful and he's done so well, but this, this is probably his first big test now because we just not playing well at the moment. The last five or six games, we haven't played well. We stole that game against you, but John, absolutely stole this. Well, it's because um, there was some extra emphasis from our manager, 
because we finally got an ex-Chelsea manager. I think that appointment, um, and it shouldn't backfire. I mean, he may be able to reinforce with some old Leicester blokes, but we're not going to go down. No Claudio Ranieri team is going to get relegated. Oh, no, because, I mean, there's, I don't know any Chelsea fans who do. I haven't got a lot of warmth for Claudio Ranieri. At the end of his reign at Chelsea, he was always, he was always dead man walking, no matter what happened. But a decent guy, and, you know, when he won the, the league at Leicester, you know, every, I'm sure every Chelsea fan celebrated. We didn't win it. It was great to see Ranieri win it, because such a nice guy. Um, so, yeah, I really, really hope he does well at Watford and uh, keeps you up. Antonio Conte has taken the job at Tottenham. This doesn't seem like a good fit and it's going to end in tears. But yeah. Conte did fantastically well. He turned the tankard of Chelsea around a few years. Do I mean tankard or tanker? Tankard as well. A tankard is in my head because uh, in the Youth Cup in the 1960s, you actually got a tankard for winning. You didn't get a medal, you, you got a tankard. One year in the League Cup as well, they got a tankard. Oh, sure right. Yeah, they got a tankard rather than a medal, yeah. But yes, Conte at Spurs. I don't know if that's going to work, but I should ask, because you're in Spain, um, obviously the coverage is about the big clubs over there, but not Ret- Retama, sadly. Uh, more on the <laughs> Is there much coverage of English football? Has the Ralph Ranić regime been marked in the papers over there? No, um, basically the uh, the major TV channel over here, Movistar, which is which what we have here, doesn't have Premier League football. None of the main Spanish stations have a Premier League contract, so you don't get a Premier League vibe over here. Um, you can go to some bars where they have these on special contracts and things, but that tends to be few and far between. So um, I don't watch a lot of English football. I don't watch some, but not a lot. Um, my attention, um, because I actually recall to leave the club to the bed as well. Is, Tends to be on La Liga, although I'm, obviously I'm still Chelsea fan and still massively interested in this football. But I tend to sort of, you know, catch it on the news um, or in the match reports and the newspapers online. Yeah, and it's very easy to get the updates from Liverpool uh, from Mr. Scrag, who is part of the These Football Times team. Uh, these Football Times is still producing these magazines about particular teams. What was it this year? Inter, Fiorentina, Ajax. Flamingo, we've done Arsenal, we've done in the, in the, there's a, the next one coming up, I'm, I'm not allowed to say. There's some great stuff in there. I, I'm always, I'm always uh, massively impressed that some of my articles will I've got an article in each of those magazines, it's some of the most fantastic writing. I'm not trying to sell the mags, I mean, they sell themselves. You see them on eBay, actually, Johnny, you know, a couple of weeks after they've sold out. And people are flogging them for 100 quid, 110 pounds, 95 pounds. I just think, buy them first off, guys, cost you a tenner. Massively popular. The success of these football times is a model for the football library, which has been open for about 18 months. 200 people have come in, some more than once, and I had to get you in because you did ask nicely, but I'm writing this book, and the protagonist is called Moz Winter. Morrissey Winter. He is a fan who becomes the manager of Albion, and I'm trying to develop the character, so it is very useful to read accounts of two seasons... In CD Retama. Retama? Retama? Retama. Retama. Uh, Retama is the residential block where I live. Right. It's called Residential Retama. That's why I nicked that name for the club. It's actually um, also conveniently in Spanish Retama means broom, oh. which is obviously one of the characters as well. So it tied it nicely. The pronunciation is Retama, not Retama. Genius. And if you know Spanish, there is some Spanish in the book, including Eos Son Retama. They are, they, they are, well, yeah. Yeah. No, uh, uh, Elos is, uh, Somos is we are, Somos Retama means we are Retama. And this is one of the themes Elos of the 
books, it seems. It's the power of the collective and playing yeah. together and a lack of individualism. So when you've got such an individual as Billy Swan, the cocky old pro, coming into this collective, it is a, a clash of values. So how keen were you to build on that theme, if at all? Well, I was massively keen to, Johnny, and this is why I, I created a friendship between, the unlikely friendship between the three musketeers, that is uh, Billy, um, Kiko and Victor. And I have to, I have to plead um, a, a lucky coincidence, you know, a serendipity about the names I've given these characters because it wasn't until I started wanting to work a little story about them that I didn't realise I could actually migrate Kiko into Kiki D quite, quite easily and Victor into Victor Meldrew. That's that, that this one calls, um, calls his mate. He calls, he calls Victor Meldrew and he calls Kiko Kiki D. And, and it wasn't until, I, I say, I, I, I was well into the story and I thought, oh, actually, I could do that there. And then they had the idea about the song which after the day sort of a semaphore and that was a nice way of saying that. And there's a big thing I wanted, to, and we touched on there about how important it was at the club and a key element of their success was they were a family. Not only the players, but the entire club and all the people around the club, the, um, the uh, Esteban, who is Esteban, the character who's, uh, who's the, sort of the groundsman on the best description. He's like an everyman of Spanish football. In most small football clubs um, they're an important part of the, the barrio or the neighbourhood where they're based and because football clubs in Spain tended to grow out of the neighbourhoods rather than be sort of placed in by, by, other, by other businesses and uh, so Esteban is the guy who's the heart and soul of, of a Ratama fan uh, the tradition of, of the club he possesses its soul as it were I, I think those sort of things were, were, were important to me that I could create that atmosphere that it was it was a whole Thing. It wasn't the club, and there's a club on the road, there's a players club. It's a whole. It only works when everybody's together, and that especially comes together in the second book as well. And it's called a whole new ball game. Uh, there is a new character uh, who is the Bella Cucina owner, the Italian owner, whose son is a pro, aka he's a little shit. Right. <laughs> I need another bad guy. I need another bad guy. I think, and very much as with. Um, Charlie in the first book we don't know that that's the case first what has happened is Ratama have um, something has befallen them in the first book and they must unbefall it in the second book um, and there is yeah. a sentence here uh, which I've at random um, Morton was painfully aware that the club was rocking a tightrope seven points with just 18 to play for any slip up now would surely be fatal to their hopes of blank and salvation and he felt helpless to prevent the fall. After all that the club had gone through, the players, the people who had loved C.D. Ratama, valued it and given their all for it. He was going to fail them. And this time, there was no one else to blame. It was down to him. Ooh. John Morton is the lead figure in this book. But there's a love interest. Now, as far as I can tell, apart from Posh and Becks, there's very little love interests in football stories. So how different was it for you, who have written all this non-fiction uh, about players, especially Ajax, in your book, Beautiful Bridesmaids Dressed in Orange? Sorry, Holland, not Ajax. Same thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ajax is coming. Not the same thing, but the same thing. The love interest, the will they, won't they? Yeah, it wasn't easy, I'll be honest with you. Um, and I tended to sort of say to the mission, this is okay, it's okay. I mean, not that, that, that it's an important that she was a one, really, but it was another person, really, so they hadn't sort of 
you, you walk in this sort of careful path between it being too soppy and too seedy, shall we say, and the two sort of extremes of where you're going. And one is sort of a fairly reasonable middle course. And uh, when the first book came out, um, my daughter had a copy and she said, can't decide that, but as soon as there's any sex in there, I'm not reading it anymore because it just doesn't feel right. In life, if you can't just say it, lots of better football because it's not true. And there are relationships outside of football and you know, social relationships and emotional relationships. You can't have your main character being this sort of bland, one-dimensional guy who sort of only exists for football. It's too much of a cliche. It just doesn't help true. And in the second book, um, I developed a similar sort of thing for, for the other characters as well. That's just the way life is. And if it's, the book isn't about football. It's about people. And football is the, the canvas upon which the story is painted, basically. I mean, that's, that was in my sort of mind. That's the, the rationale, too. Is. Mm-hmm. But you want to make it uh, um, approachable for everybody. You know, you want to just be sort of like some, some... But at the same time, the book has plenty of truisms. Good players know they need to learn. Great players... Great players know they need to steal. Know <laughs> uh, they need to never... Stop. Never stop learning. I'm oh, no. sorry, never stop learning. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's true. Any, any walk of life, though, you know, as soon as you think you know all the answers, it's time to realize you don't know all the questions. Every day is a school day. And if you don't teach people life like that, then you're never going to, you're going to really stop doing that. You're going to stop learning. The other uh, sentence that I ringed in asterisks was Retama, it's such a mess now. I can't remember who says it, Sophie or one of the players. No one has loved it for such a long time. Now let's let's spin this out because there's surely a metaphor here. What else has, in your opinion, not been loved for a long time? Just in general, it could be football, it could be life. I think generally English football hasn't been loved since the Premier League became in existence. It's perhaps been tolerated. You can, people might love the club, but the whole process of a money-dominated game, I think, has made people fall out of love. And people have loved, fell out of out of love with institutions that are seen to be guiding us in, in life. Um, I mean, I was having a positive, I don't just mean in the UK, I mean across across the world. Mm-hmm. Look, I'm in America now, Trump and Bolsonaro and Hungary, um, in Austria. So many of these sorts of um, populist uh, governments and uh, politicians who are really only skin deep and more wide. And I think that's another thing that people have had fallen in love, out of love with, but fallen in back back in love with. I was trying to put two men in his books. Um, with the advent of uh, Kindles and the, all those e-readers, books were sort of consigned to the dinosaur realm. But they, they've, they've fought back and there's, there's perhaps nothing more um, literature but to have something beautiful that you can hold and treasure rather than something that exists only in the air. As someone who put together the football library... Uh, I agree with that message. And there are tons of football fiction books uh, in the library. Did you know that both Duncan Hamilton and Jonathan Wilson in the last six months have put out works of fiction? I know that Jonathan Wilson, I saw him because I follow him on Twitter. I know you can't be interested in football, not follow Jonathan Wilson on Twitter. Um, but I saw his in, in Taggart a couple of weeks ago. I wasn't aware it was coming, but I did see they had written one. Yeah, so that's, that's probably one to... Um, to look to look at. I'm not a great reader. We're fortunate, so fortunate at um, these football times because we run a, 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 a podcast series called Centre Circle Authors, uh, and be them fiction or be them factual books about football, or lead to football to come and talk about the books, and we get to 
get to read some great books these guys have written. Uh, so it's a real trip. Outside of that, and writing, time time gets equal over here quickly. It's very difficult on time to actually pick up a book and read it. So I'll, t- I'll tend to, to read the first chapter of something. I'll come back to it. Then they're actually done for six months, and I'm out of, I'm out of the sink. But again, I've got a stack of books over there, some of which I've read, some of which I haven't. The ones I have read are The Games People Play and A Whole New Ball Game, both available <laughs> by Gary Thacker. Um, and there is a, another book next year, isn't there? A non I've got two, actually. Um, yeah, so in May of 2022, and I'm just talking about the, um, the cover design, the design there, which I hope to be, which is about um, Chelsea winning the Champions League in 2012, and it's called Out of the Blue. And I'm currently working now. That, that is all complete. That's all complete. It's, it's been edited by the um, publishers. And I'm working now on a book targeted for May uh, uh, sorry, 2023, which is marked the 50th anniversary of Ajax's third consecutive uh, European Cup triumph, and that's called the Dutch Masters, how, how Ajax's total football conquered Europe. It would provide a nice agreement to Karen Tejwani's book all about the current Ajax Amsterdam. I bet he's hoping that Ten Hag stays there. Yeah, Karen works on, the, uh, on these, football, these football times as well. He's a terrific, terrific guy. And there again, that's another book I've got more list to read. And I'm sure he'd send me a copy, but I asked him to. But uh, we got, I'm sure we're going to get him onto the, um, the centre circle soon. And I know in the way, uh, Karen White, it'll, it'll be a barn burner and, uh, right, and right down the centre of the field, fair away from my interest as well. I'm surprised that more outlets haven't asked him about the Red Bull Ralph Ranick story because he did a lot of research. I think he said nine months of research yeah. on the Red Bull Ranick story. It was a change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There again, another, another good, good book. Uh, uh, and I think not only a good book, but a fascinating subject as well. You know, with all the sorts of, uh, you know, as mentioned earlier, money coming to football, the Red Bull model of owning, running a football club is 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 unique. And for having all the money in the world, they don't go out and buy massive amounts of players, but they invest in in, in bringing players through and making profits and selling players on. And, you know, it, 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 it's another book that I, I want to read and I had not had a chance to read it yet, but um, no, I say no, read. Yeah, the second book on Ajax, which will complement your book on the Orange, the Dutch Indeed. team. The, the book that I'm writing, the, there's the Youth Cup book which is coming next year and I can't wait for my invitation to go on these football times um, and be okay. grilled uh, because I've never had a stag do. I've not married. Um, I don't think I've been to one. I've never even been to one, so. Well, to be honest with you, the stag do thing came up. I don't know if it was Aiden or Steve who mentioned it first, or it might be Paul, I can't remember. Um, but he tends to be, use the phrase for what it's. Because, I mean, uh, Steve's written one book, he's his second one. Um, Steve's written three, and he's working on another one at the moment. Aiden's working on his first book, Paul's written one, he's working on his second one. So I mean, there's about, I don't know, seven, eight or nine sort of pods we've done on each other's book. So that was the one you call us, because it's like, you know, all the lads getting together. Oh, I see, yes, yes, yes. I like having a few beers, but when it's the sort of, we celebrate one of our own guys' work, that's what kind of qualifies as a stag do, I suppose. No, that is absolutely right. And there are tons. If if you're bored over the crimbo limbo between Christmas and New Year, you're an idiot, because there's loads of stuff at uh, these football times. In addition... Uh, the Football Library will be offering the 12 Days of Fergie. You won't listen because you're a Chelsea fan. Um, but there, Mourinho comes off very well in um, one of the the days that I've done, because I've written the script. 
Um, right. Do you look at what Mourinho is doing at Roma, or is he a busted flush whose time has passed? I do, and I think you're right. It is um, strange how quickly today's hot topic becomes yesterday's news. And you mentioned Ferguson. Ferguson and Mourinho, despite the rivalry between Man United Chelsea, had a, had a really good relationship. Far different to that between Mourinho and Wenger and Mourinho and Benitez, for example. And there was always, a, I think, I mean, obviously a rivalry. But he was, it wasn't that sort of biofilm rivalry that Mourinho had with other people. But yeah, I mean, he's doing really well for us. Mourinho is like a hurricane. When he comes, when he arrives, there's lots of flashing lights and noises and bright lights. What he goes, just don't off the mess behind it. And that's happened a couple of times at Chelsea. Uh, it's happened at Real Madrid. Uh, perhaps not so much at Inter, but Tottenham. And uh, now he's at Roma, and they're not doing particularly well at the moment. And it just seems, he's, he's, yeah, I think he's yesterday's news, the new generation of coaches, the clubs, the two calls, um, Guardiola, seem to sort of, uh, sort of push the game a bit further on and I think it's gone beyond him now. I mean, he'll always do well. He'll always, have, he'll always get, get top jobs for his reputation. And, you know, he's won European Cups with, with different clubs and league titles all over the place. As you say, uh, a bust at the moment. But he's no Roberto Di Matteo, is he? Well, Roberto always has a, a, a warm spot in my heart. You know, we, we, we're terrible at Chelsea. We're, we're really terrible. You know, Ancelotti won the double for us and we sacked him the following season. Dimitteo won the European Cup of the Champions League and we sacked him the following season. Conte won the uh, won the uh, league and then was basically out. He was dead man walking the following season. You know, Chelsea, you've got this strange thing. With, but, 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 I mean, I say this strange thing, you know, people say, oh, you know, Chelsea are terrible with managers. You don't, you don't do it right. You don't sack managers. Well, since, since uh, Roman turned up, we have won more trophies than Manchester United, more trophies than Arsenal, more trophies than Tokers, than Manchester City, more trophies than any other in this club. I'm midway through the FA Youth Cup book, writing about Chelsea, and I'll go to see the under-18s. It'll be the latest crop of young players who may or may not play for the first team. But it is bellissima to see, or bellissimo, depending on what gender what I'm about to say is, um, to see these young kids having a go. And um, Manchester United as well, carrying it on. Uh, Ranić, that's what that's what it was about this week. Ranić knows that it's the Busby Babes, the class of '92, the younglings, uh, that is what makes Man United United. And uh, Tom Heaton came on, and I didn't realise this. He was on the bench in 2007 when Van der Sar was injured. He was third choice at United, and he'd never got on. So he was given 20 minutes last night in a dead rubber. And he finally achieved his ambition to play for the club who turned him from an academy player into a pro. And that is magnificent. From 2010 till about 2020, something that everyone, Chelsea won, or were runners-up in the FA Youth Cup final, something like nine out of ten years. Nine out of ten. Or something so ridiculous, absolutely crazy. So we had... If you say, you know, 11 players in the squad, let's forget you've got over 100, considerably over 100 players who were the cream of the crop for that decade and nobody made it through. And then uh, when Lampard took over and we had the transfer of that, now whether he would have done it anyway is, is, is up for debate. All of a sudden you bring these young players through and, you know, we've got we have players like Alan Tamori who we sold to Roma, Abraham we sold to Roma. But Rich James, I mean, this guy's a generational talent. Christensen, of those daddies, still came through the academy. Hudson Adoy. You can name them. Uh, James, Loftus-Cheek, Mount. Conor Gallagher's pulled up trees for, uh, for Crystal Palace. 
So, you know, uh, this, this is the sort of calibre of players. And once the club can see the value in bringing these players through, you know, rather than going out and laying out 50, 60 million pounds for a similar talent, yeah. um, the door's about to, all of a sudden, the door is open. Now, the door that was closed, door that was never even considered to be a door between the Chelsea youth sector and the, and the first team, it's, super it's a rotating door. Now, in fact, there's, there's no publishing door. It's an open walkway, which is fantastic. And, uh, you know, to have some, so much talent come through the, uh, into, into the first team reckoning now, it's, it's, it's great. It's great. I mean, it's the sort of thing that any club would want. Well, it's the sort of thing Ritama would want. It's the sort of thing Ritama would want. Indeed. Um, would John Morton be a good Chelsea manager or would he only last six months? Well, those, you know, those two things aren't, aren't mutually exclusive, don't Correct. you? As we've just discussed, <laughs> yes. I mean, well, he was. I mean, actually, um, in his time, when his first t- his, his period of the club in England, that he, he coached as he did coach the youth team and they got promoted through and brought boys through into the first team. So, so yeah, the, the model that's a, going at the moment, he would probably, yeah, would fit that, that nicely. But as I say, being a good manager and being uh, a Chelsea manager aren't necessarily the long-term backfires. Uh, and John Morton is the hero of the book Whole New Ball Game, the second in Gary Thacker's series of football fiction. Available now for, you said, about £10. Uh, and the first book, Games People Play, is available for a lot less money. Uh, and if you want some football fiction slash rom-com slash stories about life, uh, that's the place to go. So all that remains to say is have a very good Christmas over here. I hope you get over. Do you have to um, sit in a hotel for a few days? Well, you have, to, you have to sit in the hotel until the test you take after your land is, is, is cleared. So hopefully the plant will just take on the airport, um, get back, sleep overnight at the hotel, hopefully get the clearance through the following day, and then we're free. Um, but that's how it goes, because I just, there's, much other, there's so many changes happening with COVID and other matters, you know. We sort of we don't plan any more than a few days in advance. So we'll see. I mean, fingers crossed, though. Well, in any case, Feliz Navidad. Gracias, amigo. Thank you.